Yo, what's good with you? We are back for another episode and I am so happy to be here. I'm happy to be with my guy, Chef Beans. <laughs> How you been? I've been all right. Just busy, but I'm grateful. All right. How you been? I've been... Mm, okay, okay. A little, a little burnt out, a little burnt out, but we're going to get into that later. But today we have a special guest with us, Martin Henson, who is a community organizer, activist, speaker, and executive director of the Be Men Foundation. How are you today, Martin? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Be Men? Yeah. Um, again, I'm Martin Henson. He, him. Uh, executive director of B Men Foundation. B Men is an organization for Black men responding to issues specific to Black men. We do this by really mobilizing men towards support, Black men towards their own support, and putting us together to do groups and a variety of things that really reflect the positive things that Black men can build. With the overall goal is to move toward better mental health, a better quality of life, a higher sense of well being. So that's that's what we own. Okay. And you're also a counselor, correct? Or you got your degree in counseling? I got my master's in counseling. I have counseled, you know, in the past. Okay. <laughs> you know? Okay. No no so, more. <laughs> yeah, no no more. We haven't we haven't done it in a while, but uh definitely something I have in my, my bag. Okay. Well, before we get into the main topic today, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts about the Ahmad Aubrey case and what does that mean for black men or does that mean anything at all I wanted to get your opinion on that mm. since it just happened yeah just just right off just hopping into it yeah, like, yeah. we get straight into <laughs> it let's, let's get, get straight, straight to it, it. <laughs> yeah um, you know I guess I gotta answer it from my personal starting from an individual Back when I first started doing a lot of activism and I guess movement work for this before B Men had really started or maybe in the beginning, I used to want to follow every article and every incident that somebody was killed by the police or had some level of vigilante justice enacted upon them. And to the last, because it, it kind of broke me. Like I just, I was like, oh, I can't do this. Media, every morning, I would mm -hmm. probably for like an hour in the morning, I would go through CNN, Atlanta Black Star, The Root. Um, a, a couple of other ones and I would try to do that. So after mm -hmm. a while for my own mental health, I, I stopped. So when Ahmaud Aubrey, by the time that came around, I was really careful to not have to engage in the discourse around justifying why this dude should have still been alive, but also knowing enough to know what had happened. Mm -hmm. So personally, I, I've learned to like to, to not always engage in it, just to know just enough, whereas before I was doing a lot. Uh, and I think for black men, the images and visualizations of black death that you have to see. Uh, I, I say this often, maybe for the last four or five years, I've seen a video or, or sound description of black dude being killed every day. If you're mm -hmm. on social media, you can't avoid it. Yeah. Um, and for black men having to deal with that, you know, thinking about what, how the DSM uh, diagnostic statistic manual that they used to give us, say what our what disorders are if you were diagnosed with someone you think about trauma and ptsd you don't have to necessarily experience the event you can witness the event and know that it's happening to somebody else right in your world. yeah so 
So if you're constantly having to see that as a black dude and be exposed to that, and then we don't have the level of mental health support and access to be able to respond to what our needs are, I, I think a lot of a lot of black men suffer from having to witness that. And that's just one person. Yeah. Not to mention something. No, absolutely. Martin, um, I also have a question for you. So just to give you a little background on who I am, my name is Quan. I go by Chef Beans. Created something called intentional consumption where I try to intentionally put out content that's worth consuming because just as you were speaking, there is things that we consume on social media or the Internet. And we don't always know how much is negatively impacting us until we're already spiraled into a hole. So my question for you is, was there a specific event or situation that wanted that made you want to get into like activism and creating your organization? Like, was it one aha moment that you had to where you felt as though you needed to create something to impact more of the masses? You know, is I can answer that a few different ways. I, one way is that, you know, my, my family has always been really aware, really conscious. My mom, my, my dad, my stepdad, grandma, you know, it was always community work and just being aware of what, what black folks been on. When I was younger, my stepdad used to make me write essays on uh, prominent black folks. I used to hate it. <laughs> but I, by the time I got older, I was like, oh, don't nobody really know what these people, these people are and people don't value it the same way I do. So, you know, that in a lot of ways kind of made me have this focus in addition to other things. Um, but to be an activist, if I was talking about specifically being an activist, uh, I don't know if there was a or there was a moment. Uh, I remember when Genesis 6 happened, going down to Louisiana, uh, being around for that uh it's just it's all I've known. It's just to be responsive and to be thoughtful about what's the situation as it relates to black people. So I, I, I wish I had a moment. Uh, some things felt there were moments that were bigger than others, but mm. I you know like I got to get busy because this thing happened. It didn't really quite happen like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Ahmaud Arbery case. It's it's like it's bittersweet to me because it's like, yes, I'm glad that they were found guilty. But on one hand, I'm like, why did this even happen in the first place? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that still doesn't ease my mind all the way because I still might feel uncomfortable if I'm in a town like that. And there are a lot of white people around me and it's just, it's hard to digest for me because it's just like, I guess you got to take the good with the bad. It's disheartening thinking about it as well, just to see that it wouldn't even be this big if it never made it to social media or if it never made it to the Internet. This would have been swept under the rug, especially with the measures that they took. And on top of that, back to speaking about trauma and PTSD, I have this weird taste in my mouth about the government and justice, things like that. So though I can be hopeful for things to turn out as far as everybody being found guilty, mm-hmm. there's still a side of me saying, like, if they weren't found guilty, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like I've been let down so, so much. So many times. And my introduction to this police brutality on the masses, everybody talking about specific situations, was the Trayvon Martin case. Right. And for that to turn out how that turned out, it's kind of like, yo, with all this evidence, this still went that way. And I feel like I just kept being let down. So now I'm in a space where... The healthy approach is to be optimistic, right. but almost like you're numb right. to it because we're so used to getting let down right. that even when it, there is a small victory, it's like, ah, 
I don't want to get too excited. Right. Because then there's another case and the person gets set free. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to digest. But this episode, I wanted to talk about burnout because similar to Martin, like I'm in a helping profession. I'm in a profession where I hear a lot of traumatic stories, sad stories, and when you consume that so much and it's and you have that high level of stress, sometimes you can experience burnout. And I'm sure that people in other professions experience burnout as well, you know, from high levels of stress. But it's something about hearing other people's trauma on top of the stress that just creates another level of burnout for me. And even my boss had came to me this week and she was like, yeah, I can tell that you're kind of burnt out. Like, what's going on? Are you doing self-care? Are you doing, you know, and it's just like, I want to do those things. I want to do self-care. I want to take time away. But sometimes I feel like since my clients are black, that I have to, like, I can't take a break. Mm. I can't let them down because, like, who else is going to be fighting for them? Nobody else really gets it. And I had to explain to my boss, I was just like, it's just this thing that I have. When I have a black client, I feel like I can't let them down. Mm. And she, I mean, she, she was, she's Hispanic, so she didn't really get it, get it. But um, the reason why I wanted to talk about that with Martin is because he literally hears these traumatic things all the time. Right. But also it's a big part of his organization is to help these men. So, would you say that in your field of work, you experience a lot of burnout, or do you feel that you have that you're on top of those types of things? Uh, top. I, mean, I don't know if you ever feel like you're on top of it. I always <laughs> feel like I'm surviving, mm. and and uh, I you work to have moments where I feel like I'm thriving, uh, but it's you can't always tell the difference. Specifically, being a black man and the way that we deal with the impact of your mental health, or the way we deal with being depressed, there's definitely been times in my life where I have to look back and I might have been depressed then. Mm. But because the way people respond to men and you're in, you're in, you're in need, you don't really have a uh, a space for that unless you have your own therapist. Or, you know, you might talk to people and they may say, "No, nah, you know, you good, man. Just shake it off or whatever." Mm-hmm. You kind of body that after a while. But uh, burnout, if I I think I always find a way, what is, what is it? Maybe Freud said it was a reaction formation, another way to, to go about a thing that's not quite um, something that you're used to or familiar with of having a different outlet. Yeah, I think that was the real thing for me because what happened in the systems that I was dealing with back when I did do therapy or was a therapist, I realized it wasn't a lot of responses for black men. It wasn't a lot of responses for black people as we think about what the psychological profession is like is very white in the way that they think and conceptualize. And so when you happen to deal with that, specifically dealing with this, you know, movement around police brutality that's constantly happening and there's no real narrative or outlet for you. Me being a therapist, watching these cats get killed every day and I'm having to look at the video all the time. I have to relate to the kids I'm working with that are also black and they don't really know how to deal with it because the systems that they think about are largely developed by, you know, um, upper middle class white psychologists, you mm-hmm. know, that were working with white people who were sitting on couches and laying back and telling them about their dreams and some more shit, you know? Right. So, like, I'm coming from a space where 
I knew that there was something more that was needed and I, I felt like I had to create that. So yeah, I, I guess you can you can call it that because after I left the mental health field of profession, I was driving Uber and Lyft while I was doing uh, direct, like kind of on the ground activism and building DMET. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, hey, this this space is so constricted. It's, it's so constrictive to me. It doesn't really make any sense for me to be there and have to worry about if I'm impacted by what's happening with black people today. My boss is my boss going to ignore me? Do they know what's going on? Do I have to mm-hmm. advocate? Mm-hmm. I got to send some emails. And if I'm frustrated, you mad at why I'm not looking friendly today? I I just another dude just got killed by the police. I had right. to watch that. You know, so that's yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a whole- it's interesting because working in mental health, I can tell that some of my coworkers are trying to understand when things like that happen, but they they still don't get it. Right. Like they they were like, Oh, like they'll ask us in a meeting, like, Oh, how are you guys feeling? You know, this is this is this happened today, but it's just like y'all don't get it. Y'all don't get it. But mm-hmm. I would say for me, the burnout happens because I hear so many traumatic stories back to back to back to back to back, to back all day. Mm-hmm. And then then also on top of that, I'm dealing with children who are telling me that they want to kill themselves. So it's just like, yes, I do want to help. I do want to be there. But I've had to learn that I have to take a step back or I'm literally going to start getting sick, you know, because my body will start to shut down because I'm not taking care of it. And with the burnout, the only only part that I struggle with is working with the black families because I'm just like, oh, I got to help them, especially like if it's like an elderly, like a grandma taking care of the grandkids. Right. I'm like, I got to answer all her calls because uh-huh. like she's a grandmother, you know, you respect your elders. And uh-huh. even when she's on the phone with me trying to tell me all these things that are going on, I'm like. I want to stop the conversation because I have other things to do. But at the same time, I'm just like, who else is going to listen to her? I, I got a, I got a question, I guess. And either one of y'all can answer. I guess I'll kick it to Martin first, mm-hmm. like listening to both of y'all. Is there a way or is there something that you have to sacrifice trying to be an advocate and a superhero in the black community while also keeping your mental health and your mind, body and soul as a priority as well? Like does does the scale tip in any way? Is there one that you have to give more of or less of when it when a problem is presented to you? Well, I mean, you have to think about your intervention that's happening in community and in collaboration with others. I think my hardest times is when I felt alone or felt like, oh, this is a thing that only I can see, only right. I can do. Um, and, you know, when you're doing therapy work or working as a therapist, you have a supervisor that you can offload to. Uh, sometimes they're on-site, sometimes they're off-site. Um, and then you can, they'll set you up with your own counselor if you need that. Sometimes it's groups and supports in that way. Uh, if you're moving from more of an activist position, kind of on the ground, you know, these are people just showing up. So there's no trauma-informed lens or practice to make sure you're good and you can navigate from one day to the next. So mm-hmm. for a lot of folks, that's just that's doing whatever they need to do. A lot of Most of the times it's family-related who are experience a family or friends 
they just going, you know, and ain't nobody doing nothing for them uh, as it regards to ensuring that their mental health is taken care of. So I think as it relates to mine, I, rather than going hard all the time, it's like being efficient. Mm. So I'm, I'm not my mm. best. Let's say if I stayed I... up two days in a row, I'm, I'm not going to give you a good response to anything because I'm so tired. Right. Why don't I just take this eight hours here, give you something fresh, and that can be my self-care for myself, and then I can actually give you a better response. So I, I had to really change the way I thought about it. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, do you still, or should I say, do you experience any guilt when you do choose those eight hours, or are you like, no, I got to do this. I got to rest so that I could give my best. Because maybe that's just me that's still struggling with it. Like, I'm choosing self-care this time, but then I look at my phone the next day and my client sends me this long message about how she ran away and da-da-da-da. And I'm like, dang, I should have answered the call. So I guess for you in the line of work that you work in, do you experience any guilt at all? Yeah, I I did for a period of time. So it was like a a time when, I want to say a couple years ago, is that maybe three, three, four, five years? It's like no vacations, working every day, mm. uh, doing activism, doing uh, B men, um, driving. At the time when I was doing that, it was like no days off. And what I realized is that just like your range of motion with your body physically, you got to do things to make sure you don't lose your ability. You got to do that with your mind and your emotions too. Right. So if I'm not flexing my range of emotional space, then I'm going to uh, I'm I'm going to stop being who I know myself to be. And that's what made me really think more clearly about self-care, because I was like, man, I'm I'm things are I'm not reacting to nothing no mm-hmm. more like I used to. So, like, I feel like more robotic. And, you know, I got a little girl. She's 10. I can't give her less of me. I can't give so much of myself to the, the fight. That I don't got nothing to give to her. So, you know, mm-hmm. I have to really, really kind of, uh, I guess, sober up in a lot of ways and think about ways to give back and be more clear, which is what this is. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, hey, this is what I learned because I'm not going to be out there with y'all, you know, 10, 11 o'clock. I, I did that. Right, and, but I can tell right. you what I, what I knew. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That takes me to that thing that we talked about on the phone about how you're saying, like, you can't march or you can't protest forever like you have to eventually what did you say move up or strategize in different ways Mm -hmm. so can you like expound upon that comment that you made about that yeah I I think when so I guess I can talk a little bit I talked to Elder not too long ago and they was talking about what the 60s were like uh, as it relates to you know, uh, racial justice activism or, or, you know, radical thought. And everybody had a role. Everybody was doing something. Mm-hmm. Everybody who didn't have the mic, you know, some people was cooking food, some people were writing, some people were artists, so on and so forth. And I think in order for uh, uh, something to be sustained, you know, thinking about what organizations and alliances and collaborations look like, uh, specifically ones that don't require your leadership where it just requires your hand and your steering in one way or another. So like, yeah, there, there was a time when I came in young, you know, eyes wide open, ready. You know, I wanted to be out there in, in front of the police, like, what's up? Like, you know, this, <laughs> yeah. this is how I'm feeling. And, you know, there was a time for that. 
But as I've done it enough and I'm learning and I'm knowing more, I think there's a responsibility for one to myself that you can't do that for forever because a lot of movements actually become ingrained in society in some way if you want it to be successful. Uh, if we're thinking about like the Montgomery bus boycott, they're not continuing to boycott buses because they got integration. So those people who learned right. those skills went over to teach and lead people around the next movement and the next fight and the next struggle. So that advancement over time is something that, you know, we all got to see ourselves as becoming the elder, becoming, unk, you know, or right. auntie, as opposed to being like, I got to be out in the front. You got to see what I'm on because I'm really working hard, you know? Mm. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And like you said, sometimes you can't be out there like when you have a family, and you have other responsibilities. You have to be able to have something to give back to your family. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I wanted to ask you about how 2020 changed your work, like your line of work. Do you feel like it was always the same or did 2020 actually have an impact where work picked up a lot more for you or you got more people coming to your organization? Would you say that it was a change or do you think it was the same? Yeah, I mean, 2020 changed because uh, a lot of the, the digital atmosphere shifted. You feel me? Because we hit the we had the pandemic early on. Mm -hmm. That was around, you know, mid-March and everything shut down. Like, and if you didn't have skills to, to think about how your organization could operate without being on the ground, you kind of left behind. Right. Like, quick. You know, so a lot of the folks, I was just paying attention, a lot of folks who did really well were the people who could adapt well. Mm -hmm. And um, I think as my organization, we were meeting physically doing the support groups um, in person, and then we had to instantly go digital. So, you know, I had to know how to work Zoom and where to promote it at and who to talk to. And if you're doing collaboration, now they're digital, mm -hmm. you know, doing panels or workshops and or things of that nature. So I was able to rely on my ability to be adaptable, which I, I think I largely attribute to some of that doing the, the activism stuff, because you see how you kind of have to know and move a little bit. Um, so yeah, it, it took that. But then you had to deal with the kind of the grief and the hardship around COVID. Everybody mm -hmm. loses somebody. Then you're dealing with the uh, George Floyd protest that was happening. You're seeing that all the time, trying to weigh out what's the cost of showing up in the streets versus getting COVID because we didn't know how bad it was at the time. Right. Healthy family. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot to deal with. Mm -hmm. I think I, I came out of it learning to value my relationships and tend to them a lot more than mm -hmm. what I was doing before. Mm -hmm. Okay. And my question too is how do you, so you're in these support groups with the men, right? And yep. Also, some of the things that they're saying or going through is happening in the real world and you're seeing it on social media. So how are you able to, I guess, be that leader, even though you're still getting traumatized yourself? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you're, you're seeing everything that's playing out on social media and you're also listening to the stories that they're having, which they probably been through similar things with the police or what have you. How do you, I guess, keep your composure? Cause sometimes for me, when, when that stuff was going on, like in 2020 and my clients wanted to talk about it, I kind of like not shut down, but 
I had to really be mindful of don't put your own emotions into right. their session or don't, you know, put your own thing into it because like this is supposed to be their time to express themselves. So I guess my question to you is what do you do when you have those situations? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So that, that therapeutic neutrality wasn't something that I had to have from doing these support group spaces. So I could be vulnerable and say, Hey, I'm, I'm feeling blank, blank and blank today. And, and how we set up our meetings is that we pass it around in circle, like digitally, we kind of have like, once people talk, we have a kind of an order that everybody shares. Everybody gets a chance to share. Right. Everybody gets a chance to listen. It comes from, you know, circle practice, indigenous, most kind of uh, a lot of it rooted in restorative justice stuff. But yeah, I get to be my full self. And mm-hmm. I think I had to, I will find myself being in those spaces saying more than I thought I was going to say. Or they'll reflect on something that I said that I was like, oh, man, I didn't even realize that, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I think it was a moment for me to be able to practice vulnerability because that's what I lead with. Like, I'm fully human, just like y'all. I'm not, I'm not coming out here suit and tied up and, like, trying to present black maleness as a professional orientation that looks like me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nah, I look like y'all, you know, and I'm having the same experiences that y'all are having. Mm-hmm. And so I would have to just share, hey, if I'm, this is what's happening for me. And and if you're in a space like that, you kind of set the tone for how vulnerable people are going to be if you're being real about where you are. If I'm not, if I'm being more caged and giving a little bit, then they're going to just give a little bit. So that's kind of how the leadership manifests uh, as in that regard. Well, that's I'm I'm happy for you that you're able to do that because I'm not able to. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like, man, I want to start crying, but I can't because this is not that space for me. I have to wait until I go see my own therapist to do that. But I get since it's different, it's, it's a support group. You don't have to have those same uh, walls up or be as neutral or re- responsibility too. I think sometimes like we give ourselves the responsibility to be strong and make sure, oh, I got to be tough. I got to be able to hold the weight of whatever someone's dishing out to me. But I right. think inadvertently that's also harming you, telling yourself that you have to be able to possess that strength. And like uh, Myron was saying, I've honestly found more strength in vulnerability. The thing that people told me was soft growing up. It's, it's right. soft to feel. As a man, you're not supposed to respond like that. But I think that unlearning process has set me up for success. So I guess like in your sessions or whatever it is, like, I, I don't know. I can't speak on it, but I've just found more strength in vulnerability as, right. opposed, as opposed to just trying to keep it together. Yeah. I mean... There's spaces where you can be vulnerable, like what Martin does. That's a space where you could be vulnerable because it's not as, you know, client uh, therapist uh, interaction. But I think the reason why I stress so much about it is because we're always learning, like from our supervisors, that the client shouldn't be worried about your feelings in their session. Right. You get what I'm saying? Because then they hold back. So let's say if my client is telling me this really sad story about how she saw her friend getting killed by the police or something like that, and I start crying, then she might feel like, oh, I can't tell her because I don't want to upset my therapist. Right. You get what I'm saying? No, absolutely. So it's, yeah, I mean, it sucks, but (laughs) that's just professionally what we're supposed to do. That's interesting. But, I like how Martin, like his organization has like a support group. Mm -hmm. It's something about 
being in a group and understanding like there's other people going through the same things that you're going through that just gives you strength. Absolutely. And I wish I wish like I could do well, I probably could, but I I wish I could do that for the younger kids. I mean, they're a little more it's harder for them to be vulnerable in front of others right. than adults, but that's that's a great idea, and I really like what your organization is doing. Um, so I forgot to ask, when did you start your organization? Yeah, that was twenty eighteen. Okay, uh, twenty eighteen, and so like twenty eighteen, we started. The next year, two of my friends passed. Like that was my you know biggest supporters. One of them was Kahar Charles. The other one was Darrell Mix. They they died like within a month of wow. each other. So like you know that was a, a like a gut check moment where I was like, man, can I keep doing this? Mm. Can I? Because I'm I'm struggling. I was still doing B men meetings at the, like when that happened wow. and like telling them where I was at and what was going on. So that was like my example of like, man, I'm just being fully everything that I am. If I don't got a whole lot, I'm gonna be honest about where I'm at, where I am and and how that's that's living out for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the moment where I had to decide if I wanted to keep going. And I think. When I think about the black men in my world and the black men that I have to see being lost all the time, I'm always perseverating on how to keep them close, how to keep them alive. I think about my cousins, my nephews, you know, my parents, you know, grandparents, all the people that came before and people that come after me. And, you know, it just had to keep going. And I'm really blessed and fortunate that I'm still here. But yeah, when you start something new, uh, that's really passionate and you don't know what you was doing because I definitely didn't know what I was doing there. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you have those moments and mm-hmm. um, you got to find your why, you know. Right. So what do you think of the future of the organization? Do you feel like you're going to be doing this until you're old and gray or do you think like you're going to work with other people to train them to take over so you could get a break? Or what do, what do you think? Um, well, I, no, I'm not going to be doing it till I'm old and gray. I, I'm going to be, it's all about passing it on and passing it forward. And the goal is to train and, and build up enough men to create their own support spaces that eventually one of them will be able to do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be able to expand into another thing, probably doing something similar because, you know, I love my people. But, uh, but that's, that's what the plan is, you know, always passing it forward, always moving forward because, you know, it's it's not just me, you know. It's it's for all the people that are going to come after me, and right, you know, and I, right. I got to get that opportunity. Right. So tell us how we can support your organization, or if somebody is looking to join a support group as a part of your organization, like how how can they go about that? Word, um, check out bmanfoundation.org. dot uh, You can sign up for one of the groups there. Uh, we also we do the support groups every second Sunday from five to seven. Uh, you can see that's see the sign up for that on Eventbrite, on LinkedIn, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you can find us all those places. If you want to connect, you can email me at martin at bmanfoundation dot org or uh, info at bmanfoundation dot org for general general information. Yeah, we are here. You know, uh, you want to donate, you can do that. Go to our page, mm-hmm. hit that donate button. Uh, we can, we'll take take as much help as we can get, but uh, yeah, I'm just grateful, man. I'm grateful to to be here and be a part of this, and I would love for as many people as possible to to join me. Um, so your organization is located in in Boston, correct? But anybody can join these support groups. Like you don't have to be yeah. 
near Boston to be a part of it, right? Right. Is it primarily a Zoom, like over the internet? Yeah, yeah. It's all digital, so anybody can join from wherever you are and, you know, be, be connected. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I learned a lot today about your organization, and I'm just I'm so happy to see young men like yourself doing great things in the community. And it it inspires me to do more. Honestly, it always inspires me to do more when I hear stories like that. And can you tell the people where they could find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, you can find me at uh, Till We Free on uh, Twitter. Um, Talk about what I'm doing and, you know, at B-Man Foundation for all the handles I gave earlier. Yeah, um, reach out, man. I'm I'm constantly talking about it. I'm constantly getting upset about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I work when I'm mad, though, so I'm just creating new opportunities and more interventions for for black men. So that's what I end up doing. Well, thank you so much. And that has been another episode of what's good with you. But yes, yes, yes. do not forget to follow us on Instagram, double underscore what's good with you. And also we are on YouTube. We're on TikTok, guys. I, 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 I fell into the TikTok trap. Yeah, you're pretty good, too. I mean, I'm trying, but I still don't get it. I'm just like, this is, I feel kind of old, you know, when I'm on there. Because I'm like, I don't know how to navigate this. But, yeah, we're on TikTok now. And then we're also on the regular um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music. And that has been another episode of What's Good With You. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right.